Welcome to the teaching ministry at Magnolia's First. We hope the next few minutes will help you take your next steps on your faith journey. And we would love to help you take those next steps. Just head over to m1bc.org and fill out the connect form and a pastor will get in touch with you very soon. Or you can text us at 281-343-3033. Conflict in churches is not uncommon especially in Baptist churches, or maybe that just seems that way to me because that's all I've ever known. But conflict is not uncommon, but it's especially difficult when the conflict comes between the pastor and the worship leader. Now, thankfully, that doesn't exist in in our church. Dalton and I are good friends. We get along uh, wonderfully. I consider him one of my sons in the ministry. So there's complete harmony here, but not always is that true in, in other churches. In fact, a story is told about one particular church. It was kind of a small church, uh, and it had a pastor and a worship leader who directed a small choir uh, every week. And the the custom, the culture in that church was that uh, the pastor would pick the subject for the sermon and then the worship leader would find an old hymn that would uh, coincide with the subject matter of the sermon and that would be sung after the sermon. But then when the pastor and the worship leader, the choir director, uh, became in conflict with one another, here's what began to happen. On the first Sunday after the conflict began, the pastor preached on the importance of serving the Lord uh, in the church and giving your service to the kingdom of God. And that Sunday, the choir sang, I shall not be moved. Well, the pastor thought that that was really kind of an odd choice, but the next Sunday, he was preaching on the difficult subject of tithing and giving to the church. And then the choir stood up at the end of the sermon and and sang, Jesus paid it all. Well, that was very troubling, but the next Sunday he was preaching on gossiping and, and the tongue, probably out of the book of James. And the choir stood up after the sermon and sang, I love to tell the story. So, uh, the pastor was really getting frustrated. In fact, the next Sunday he was honest enough to tell the congregation that he was frustrated with the, the disharmony in the, the church and that he was considering resigning. And then the choir stood and sang, oh, why not tonight? But, but the last one, The next Sunday, he did resign, and he said to them, Jesus brought me to this church, and now Jesus is telling me to leave this church. And the choir stood up and sang, what a friend we have in Jesus. (laughs) Now, you might have surmised that's not a true story, but this one is. Cindy and I were pastoring a small church before we came to this church in 1990. And so the the late 80s found us pastoring this church that had been a mission of a large and established congregation in the city of Houston. But the the mother church pastor and the mission church pastor got at odds with each other, and the, the sponsoring church cut that mission off so that it no longer gave financial or any other kind of support. And so that mission church, rather than disband, constituted as an autonomous, independent, cooperating Southern Baptist church. But then the mission pastor resigned and went to another church. 
And after spending more than 20 years as a worship pastor, I had felt a call to become a teaching pastor, a senior pastor. And so we began to look for God's place for us, and he led us to that little church that had been abandoned by the sponsoring church as well as its founding pastor. And that little church only had two deacons. And one of those deacons was a very large man probably close to 400 pounds, who was also the volunteer worship leader. And at first, things went pretty well. The church uh, grew. We had property but no building. We were meeting in an elementary school, and uh, we grew to a little over 100, and the, the Baptist General Convention of Texas told us that they would help us build on property until we found out the property was unbuildable. And there's more to that story, but here's, here's what happened. I noticed that the, the deacon, the worship leader, uh, began to, to kind of give us the cold shoulder. He wouldn't talk very much, and so I didn't know what was going on. I thought, I, I really need to find out if there's an issue, and I'm not aware of it. But on one Sunday night, and you have to envision this, we're meeting in an elementary school. There's only a total of about 25 people in, in the entire service. And he stood up that night and he led worship, acting like he was mad at Jesus and God and all the people, including me. And uh, I had no clue what was going on, but you could tell there was something not good happening in his heart and mind. But he, he finished leading worship. He went and sat down on the front row right about there. And again, only about 25 people. And as I began to preach, he took out a paper copy of the Houston Chronicle and loudly unfolded it and began reading. I don't know how I got through that sermon that night, but I will confess I got angrier and angrier as he continued to read the chronicle on the front row, obviously saying, I don't want to hear anything this man has to say. And so after the service, I pulled him aside for a private conversation, and in my most loving, uh, pastorly voice said, what is wrong with you? And it took a while for me to, to dig it out of him, but the bottom line was this. He was jealous that I was giving, in his mind, more attention to the other deacon than I was giving to him. And it caused conflict in the church. True story. The reality is conflict in God's church is not new. It was going on in the first century. As we are making our way through the book of James, verse by verse, uh, last week we talked about the contrast that James told us about worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. And he gave us a description of what godly wisdom in the, the church, in the life of the Christ follower, looks like in chapter 3. And so I want to revisit uh, a couple of verses before we dig into chapter 4. Our main text for today will be James 4, 1 through 10. But I want to look back at James 3, verses 17 through 18, as he talks about godly wisdom. He said, but the wisdom from above... It's first of all pure. It is also peace-loving, gentle at all times, and willing to yield to others. 
It is full of mercy and the fruit of good deeds. It shows no favoritism and is always sincere. And those who are peacemakers will plant seeds of peace and reap a harvest of righteousness. That's what Christ followers are supposed to be and do. But in the first century, as well as the 21st century, among some of God's people, the reality is very different. And conflict arises in the church. And when that happens, and by the way, I'm not talking about, I didn't plan this sermon as a part of what's going on in our church. I'm just going through the book of James verse by verse. Uh, it, It happens in churches all the time. And James is saying when that kind of conflict happens, both other Christ followers inside the church and outside the church and the skeptical, cynical unbelievers who don't know Jesus and desperately need the gospel look upon that conflict in the church and they ask, who started that fight? How did that happen in the very place that is supposed to be filled with peacemakers and love and harmony. And so James confronts it in the early church. So let's begin our main text, James 4, verse 1. What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? Now think about it. We expect unbelievers to be in conflict with one another, do we not? We expect it in the politics of our day. It seems like one party can't get along with the other party. I think some of that's intentional because both parties are seeking power. But it's not just on the national governmental level. Uh, You expect groups of people who most of them don't know the Lord. They have no allegiance to Christ. Uh, They have... Uh, no allegiance to the the word of God. They just, you know, they're unbelievers. And so you would expect them to have conflict. But that's not to whom James is writing. James is writing to Jewish Christ followers, remember, that had undergone persecution. They had stood up for their faith in Jesus. And because of that, many of them had to flee their homes and find some other place of refuge somewhere else in the Roman Empire. So these are people who have not only professed faith in Christ, they have suffered for their faith in Christ, and yet they find themselves in conflict. And so James says, what, who started this fight? What What is happening among you? And he calls it the quarrels and fights. And he says the source of that, you need to understand, is evil desires at war within you. The literal translation of the word here rendered desires means enjoyments. Things one would believe that they would enjoy more than Jesus. And what was really happening was people were not getting their way in the early church, and so they found themselves at odds with one another, and rather than finding reconciliation and peaceful solutions, they were causing conflict. 
and chaos in the church, the very place where the peace of Christ should reign. Uh, James chapter 3, I want to go back again and look at verse 16. And in that verse, James described worldly wisdom, the ways of people without Christ. And he says in James 3.16, For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. And that's exactly what was happening. So now back in chapter 4, he's dealing with that to try to give corrective biblical instruction. Uh, Look at verse 2. You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. Now, I, I don't think James here is being literal. I don't think they were murdering one another in the first century church. But he was remembering what Jesus had said. So uh, put a, a pause there in James 4 and look with me at Matthew 5, 21 and the first part of 22 where Jesus talks about murder. He said, you have heard that our ancestors were told you must not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Now that was not surprising. But then Jesus said, verse 22, But I say, if you are even angry with someone, you are subject to judgment. So literal murder was likely not happening in the first century church, nor does it happen very often uh, among members of the church of today. But anger is common. Division is common. Uh, Chaos in, in some churches that ought to be the place of harmony. And it's because people in those churches are basically saying, when I don't get my way, I get angry. When I don't get what I want, I'm going to give the cold shoulder to someone else. And James says, go back to James 4 verse 2, he says, you're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Now, he could be talking about possessions here, but likely he's talking about authority and control. You find that somebody else has the authority or the responsibility of making decisions, and you really want it your way instead of their way. And so you start a fight to try to get your way. And then he goes on to to teach us, yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. Now, if you just take that one sentence out of context, you might say, wait a minute. Are you saying that like Solomon, if I just ask, you'll give it to me? Do you remember that story from last week where God said to Solomon, whatever you want right now, I want and need a drink of water. Whatever you want, Solomon heard from God, I'll give it to you. Just ask. So is James saying that that, that's the way it is with any of of Christ's followers? Is he saying that God is a, a name it and claim it God? Well, there is one very important condition on our requests. Verse 3. 
And even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. In other words, if you're asking for something that is not the will of God, if you're asking for something that is not honoring to Christ, if you're asking for something that does not build up the unity and harmony in the church, then you're asking for something that is your own selfish will and desire. Uh, I, I want to take you for a moment to the book of 1 John. Uh, there's an important truth that relates to, to James 4. 1 John 5, verses 14 and 15. John said, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. Now, did you catch the last four words? Therein lies the condition. Anything that pleases him. And if that's the case, then verse 15 is true. And since we know that he hears us when we make our request, we also know that he will give us what we ask for. James in chapter 4 is dealing with people in the church that are not wanting something that is godly and pleasing to God and will advance the kingdom and bring about harmony in the church. They want their own way. They want what they want. And he's trying to help them see that when we act in that way, we're not acting in any way different from the world. We're not acting in any way that is different than the culture that, that is narcissistic in that they want their own way. And so here's the challenge for us. When we are continually asking God for something, and he is not giving it to us, we should look deeply at our motives. Look deeply at our motives. Now, sometimes we ask God for something that is within his will, but his answer is not yet. Have you ever had that kind of answer from God? Not yet. But we won't know if that's his answer until we do that heart exam, that examination of whether our motives are really to please him or to please us. And if we come to the conclusion that what we are asking for is right and just and in the will of God but is not happening yet, then we know our answer from God is not yet. Not yet. The answer is yes, but not yet. But if we look at our heart and we're honest with ourselves and we listen to the voice of the Holy Spirit and he says, what you really want is to be in control. What you really want is to call the shots. What you really want is to get what you really want. And if that is the case, if we look into our heart and we see that we are self-motivated then James has some powerful words. In fact, if that's the case, his words in the next verse will come like a slap in the face. Verse 4, James said, you adulterers. Wow. You adulterers. Don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again, if you want to be a friend of the world, if you want to act like the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. 
Now, from the very first time I read verse 4 of James chapter 4, I had to wonder, why would he use such a term as adulterers? Why would he call brothers and sisters in Christ who are being disobedient and destructive and causing chaos and disharmony, but why would he call them adulterers? And it's because those who act like the world, though they have promised that Christ has their heart and that they will live for him, they're cheating on Jesus. They're they're going after the mistress of worldly wisdom. The carnal system of our secular culture that is estranged from and hostile toward the things of God. People who are the enemies of God and the gospel. And that's what the world is, by the way. Yes, there are many people that are apathetic and and disinterested in anything, not just of Christianity, but of religion. But then there are some, many in the culture, that absolutely are the enemies of the gospel, the enemies of God. Cindy and I saw a a television commercial recently that was sponsored by, uh, what was the name of the? Freedom From Religion Foundation. Freedom, and, and their express mission is to try to rid the American culture of all religious expression and practice. They're enemies of God. And so James is saying, over here on this side, you have those who are enemies of God. And over on this side, you have Christ followers who want to honor Jesus and live in the will of God. And he's telling those early believers, you can't live in the middle. You you can't get in the gray area and try to have what you want of the, the world's ways and a little bit of what you choose like you're at Luby's of God's ways. You're either on one side or the other. And so he's calling them out. And he's saying you can't be halfway in the kingdom of God. He says in verse 5, look at this, it's powerful. He said, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate that the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. God created us. Think about this. God created us with our primary purpose of having fellowship with him. He sent Jesus to reconcile us to himself. He wants us to live in harmony and in fellowship and in love with him. But when we turn our back on him and his express truth from Scripture... And we behave in ways that are more like the world than the ways of God. That unfaithfulness breaks his heart. It makes us like an adulterous spouse. But even when we do that, the heart of our God is not to punish us. The heart of our God is is to reconcile us to himself once again. He wants us to repent of those things we've done that are sinful so that we can be restored into full and complete fellowship, that we would come back to his love and lordship. Look at verse 6. 
and he gives grace generously. As the scriptures say, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So he's saying to those early Christ followers who had caused all the chaos in the early church with their disharmony and their selfish motivations, he's saying, I'm going to tell you what you need to do to make this right with God. Powerful instruction, verse 7. So, humble yourselves before God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That's a powerful verse. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Here's what he's saying. Resisting the allurement of sin requires God's power. We can't do it on our own, but it begins with our choice. We have to choose to humble ourselves in repentance. We have to choose to seek the mercy, grace, and forgiveness of God. Uh, again, put a pause in, in James 4, and I want to take you to 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. And the apostle John here is dealing in the, the larger passage about people who had infiltrated the church and were trying to cause from outside uh, disruption and disharmony and destruction to, to the church. And so he says to the, the Christ followers, but you belong to God, my dear children. You have already won a victory over those people because the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. If you grew up in the, in the church with the King James Bible as I did, you may have uh, memorized that verse something like this, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Yes, the devil is at work to do destruction in our individual lives and in God's church, but greater is the Holy Spirit than the spirit of the enemy. Greater is he, the one who is within you, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, if you're a Christ follower. Greater is he than the spirit of the world and the enemy. And so James continues his instruction in verse 8. He says, come close to God, and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, for your loyalty is divided between God and the world. You're trying to live in the gray area of wanting what you want and not wanting what God wants. And so James is saying to us, as he was saying to those early believers, if you have compromised with the things of the Lord, if you have acted sinfully in some area of your life, if we have been unfaithful to Christ's lordship and the teaching of Scripture, then James' command to us is the same as to those early believers. Come close to God. He won't turn you away. God will come close to you. He's saying when there is unforgiven sin in your life, when we know we have done something displeasing to God, but we continue to let it remain unforgiven, we have not repented of it, 
We have persisted in that sinful behavior anyway. We don't lose our salvation because our salvation is God's gift by grace through faith. Amen. We don't earn our salvation when we receive it. We don't earn keeping it. So we're not talking about losing our salvation, but what we are talking about when there is sin that is unforgiven and unrepented of, we are putting a barrier between us and our fellowship with the Lord. We are clogging up the conduit of the power of the Holy Spirit that should be flowing every day into our lives. We are, we are breaking the vital union in which we should live with Jesus Christ. Again, pause in James 4 and look in John's gospel. You, you probably know these verses, but here's what Jesus says to us if you are a Christ follower. John 15, beginning with verse 4. Jesus said to us, remain in me, and I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you remain in me. Yes, I am the vine, you are the branches. Those who remain in me and I in them will produce much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Anyone who does not remain in me is thrown away like a useless branch and withers. Such branches are gathered into a pile to be burned. Again, we're not talking about the loss of salvation, but we're talking about the loss of usefulness in the kingdom of God. We're talking about the loss of that vital union with Christ. We're talking about that flow of his spirit's power into our lives. We're talking about as far as our usefulness and purpose in advancing the gospel in the kingdom of God, we are useless and thrown on the scrap heap. Why would any true Christ follower allow that to happen? Why would they be content with that disruption of union with Christ and the power of God's Spirit in their life to continue? Why would they continue in disobedience knowing that it breaks the heart of God? Because though God's heart is broken about it, their heart is not. And James 4, verse 9, he says to them, let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter and gloom instead of joy. One of the evidences that somebody is a true Christ follower is they cannot be apathetic or disinterested in any sin in their life that has not been repented of and restoration given. If known sin does not bother someone, if they can continue in disobedience, it's an indication that in all likelihood, the kind of faith they have was not saving faith. It was that counterfeit faith that James taught us about back in chapter 2. <clears throat> but if a true born-again Christ follower comes back to the Lord confessing what they've done, brokenhearted about what they've done, humbling themselves in repentance before the Lord for their sin, 
And they're miserable because they realize how their actions have broken the heart of God. Then that union can be restored. James 4 verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up in honor. The good news about the gospel is that when we become his child and we sin, and we do still sin, don't we? We still have a sinful nature, and it's strong, and it's stubborn, and it wants its own way rather than God's way. But when we sin before the Lord, he desires to show us mercy and grace and forgiveness. When we are repentant, our good God is forgiving And he longs to restore that vital union of the vine and the branches. Again, look at John's words in 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. The Apostle John says, If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But verse 9, But if we confess our sins to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So I close once more with three, story, uh, three questions that I want us to ask ourselves. Here's the first. Have, have you been engaged in a conflict based on your selfish desires rather than your desire to honor the Lord? Are you estranged from somebody because basically you wanted your own way rather than truly seeking God's path? Question two. Is there any area of your life that you have adopted the values of the culture rather than the truth of Scripture? Is there any way in which you are acting more like a person who doesn't know the Lord and has bought into worldly wisdom rather than a born-again Christ follower who believes the Scripture and actually seeks to live it out? Final question. Does your faith journey have the spiritual discipline of repentance of known sin and restoration with the Lord? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Do you do that? Do you ask the Lord to show you areas in which you have been disobedient or inconsistent with his will? And you seek to confess and repent of that sin and receive his forgiveness. If not, There will be chaos in your life and chaos in the church. Let's pray together. Father, we confess that we are sinful people. Those of us who have received the grace of God by faith in Christ are forgiven people, but we're still sinful people. And there are times we want our own way more than we want the ways of God. We want to be in control We want to call the shots. We really want to use prayer for you to help us get what we want. Lord, forgive us of that sinful, selfish motivation and restore the spirit of Christ, the spirit of peace, 
the spirit of unity within our hearts and within the body of Christ. Father, I pray for the burdens that many brought into this service. And as we close the service with prayer, I pray that you would move upon their hearts to seek you, to seek you for forgiveness, if it's a sin that needs to be confessed, to seek you for healing, if it's an illness that has come into their life, to seek restoration with someone that they have come into conflict with, whether it's a a financial provision that is needed, whatever it might be, Lord. Help us in these final moments of worship to seek you through prayer. Lord, I pray that if there's anybody here today who needs to take a step in their faith journey, the first step or maybe the hundredth, whatever it might be, help them to come to one of our prayer partners and just simply say, I need to take the next step. And we're here to help them do that. Lord, we give you these holy moments, these closing minutes of this service to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me, please? Our prayer partners are making their way to the front. If you need God's healing in your body today, come and I'll anoint you and Cindy and I will pray over you. Let's don't waste these precious final moments of prayer.